Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada is inching toward 200,000 cases of COVID-19. What does that actually mean and what are the implications? We'll get into that. Panic building for small businesses due to the pandemic, too. And to get into further details about how this is impacting, we're going to hear from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business folks to give us a perspective on that. And the dispute between First Nations and Nova Scotia fishers has worsened over the weekend. A rally was held in support of both sides and a fishery was actually set on fire. We'll get the latest update from our global team in Nova Scotia. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Talking about COVID and we're looking at the spikes that are happening in the United States, but as uh, we talked about with the Prime Minister just a few minutes ago, we have our own problems on this side of the border. Canada is coming up on another COVID-19 milestone, 200,000 cases. But what does that number actually mean? I mean, is it really just the diagnosed cases that we're looking at and how bad and how problematic is the situation as we see it today? Uh, to talk about this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Anna Banjuri uh, from, uh, of course, uh, University of Toronto with the Faculty of Medicine. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Oh, my pleasure. And much, an observation, if you could. I mean, we're seeing the numbers going up here in Ontario and Quebec and uh, actually in parts of Alberta. Uh, all the experts are telling us, look, we know more than we ever did before. We're taking precautions. I mean, you know, six, eight months ago, very few people were wearing masks. Most people are these days. Uh, I think we're doing some social distancing. We seem to be. It's still an awful lot of people working from home as opposed to getting back into crowds again. Why are the numbers going up as highly as they are? Well, I think there's multiple reasons, but one is the nature of the virus. Now, this is a highly infectious virus, and, you know, it spreads when you have people... Uh, you know, in growth, but it's, you know, so most respiratory viruses peak, um, you know, in the winter t- period. So in the fall uh, to early uh, winter, that's that's fairly typical. So we don't really know the nature of this virus yet because it hasn't been around for that long. So if it's, if it's like a typical respiratory virus, that's when these viruses peak. The other thing is the weather is getting uh, colder, and so more people are indoors, and when you're indoors, it allows the virus to spread. And the other big thing that's happened is that we've uh, opened up schools. And so a lot of kids with, you know, mild respiratory symptoms, they may have COVID. And it, it seems like uh, kids are spreading the virus to other kids. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why this virus is um, uh, surging upwards. And it's not just here. It's, it's all around the world. The, the children and the, the school thing is, is very important, I think, because I think there was a, a maybe an expectation that, well, if we, if there's no spike in the number of kids that are getting it, then maybe it was a good idea. But uh, you and others have, have told us on the program over the last few months uh, the concern was that children could be spreaders, not necessarily suffering from uh, symptoms of COVID, but at least, you know, bringing it home to others. Yes. And, and so, um, you know, at the beginning in September, when a lot of kids were going back to school, you had a lot of kids having runny noses, and then uh, they had to have testing to go back to school, and uh, and so then the lineup went, became like seven, eight hours, and so now they're not testing anymore. So we really don't know the number of kids that are that are getting the infection and spreading the infection. Um, so my suspicion is that it's quite high. You know, in adults, we, we've talked about this before, you have a, a 30% false negative rate. And children, a lot of us believe it's higher than that. And the kids have, like what I've seen, like minor symptoms, like just a runny nose or just a mild cough, and it can easily get dismissed. And so what's happening is a lot of these kids, they get these symptoms. Some of them have COVID. 
if not many of them have COVID. And people are saying, well, it's just a runny nose. Send them back to school. And so they go back to school and then they spread it. And so what what I think part of what's going on is that the kids are getting it. They're spreading it in the schools. And then the families are getting it. So I talk to families um, on a fairly regular basis. And, and their kid, they have kids that are school age. They have mild symptoms. But the adults have more typical symptoms of COVID, or they may have just symptoms of a, of a cold. And, and there's a lack of recognition that this could be COVID. And so we're not really, and a lot of these kids now are not being tested because their symptoms are mild, and people don't want to wait in line for a long time. So we really don't have a good sense of what's the actual numbers, but, you know, the, the, it's an upward trend. Is, is there any way to quantify that number, the number of people that may actually have the virus but either don't know it or just don't bother to, to notify anybody that they've actually had it or, or for that matter, to get tested? Um, I don't think there's any way of quantifying that right now. The only way we'll know is, uh, you know, in the future, if someone goes back and, you know, for example, in December and, and tests a whole bunch of kids in, in classrooms, like either in a region or, or across multiple regions, and you and if it's a good antibody test, you'll say, oh, 20% of these kids have had COVID. Only, you know, 3% were tested positive, but we've actually had a lot of COVID here. So we, a lot of what I'm saying is I'm guessing at, based on my observations, and I could be wrong, but I think that there is a lot of COVID out there in the schools. And it's in, that's one of the reasons, among other reasons, that's driving the numbers up. But, you know, when we do antibody testing, if you do it on a school school basis, you'll have a better idea of how many kids have had COVID. How long do you actually have the, the virus and suffering from the symptoms? I mean, you know, the old adage about having a head cold, it's three days coming, three days really bad, three days getting rid of it. So, see if, in other words, about a week and a half before you can start feeling better. Uh, so, so it depends on so many things. It depends on your age how much virus you're exposed to. A lot of kids that I've talked to just have um, viral symptoms of runny nose for a couple of days, and that's it. And you can't really tell it apart from the cold. Um, and then there are people that have, you know, as you said, a couple of days of viral symptoms. You don't feel well. You have the headache, the body aches, et cetera. And these tend to be the adults. Uh, and, and so, you know, usually weak. But then there are people that have symptoms that last on last for like a week or two weeks and then there's a it's much more rare but the long haulers that have symptoms that either continually last like the shortness of breath the body aches the headache the brain fog that goes on for for several weeks or even months but that's again that that could be rare and they could get better in between and then have it or they can just continually just not feel well and have the symptoms progress you know, over a period of time. And then eventually, you know, eventually it gets better. But, you know, we've had people who've had symptoms from March and they still ha- are suffering from some symptoms. So it's really hard to know. But mo- but the younger you are, the milder it is and the shorter it lasts. Uh, we know that people with pre-existing conditions, and there's a long list of those, of course, may be more prone to the virus. But there's really no way of, of, of knowing how the virus is going to impact, whether you're going to be a long hauler or be out of this in three or four days. Yeah, it's. I mean, when you take into consideration age and risk factors, uh, comorbidities, that increases or decreases the risk. But for the actual individual that gets COVID, there's no way to really predict, you know, how well or how poorly they're going to do other than, you know, their age and the risk factors. 
Uh, Dr. Tam, uh, over the weekend, uh, Teresa Tam was talking about possibly uh, implementing another set of restrictions to try to stop the spread on this, not unlike what we saw in the early part of this year. Is, is that inevitable? Are we going to have to do that when we see these numbers continue to rise? I hope it's not in- inevitable. I, it's really hard to know. I mean, I think that people have done a lot, and many people have made sacrifices over, over the, uh, the months, you know, the past seven, eight months. Um, if it's something we absolutely have to do because the numbers are just out of control, then we have to do it. And, I, and that, at that point, you know, you look at the, the risks um, and the benefits of, of increasing the lockdown. I think, you know, Toronto, Ottawa, um, Montreal, we're, we've gone back to uh, a modified stage two. So, so we're in a lockdown and there are consequences of, of both. Um, but I think that, you know, people are, are getting sick, but as long as the hospitals are able to manage the people and they're not getting overwhelmed, I hope that we don't end up having a further lockdown because, you know, then again, people are going to lose their businesses. More people are going to lose their businesses. More people are going to be stressed. And this is very hard for, for so many people. And I'm hoping that, that with the restrictions that are in place right now, that this is enough to sort of, as, as we say, flatten the curve. But depends on what happened. If we if we're like Italy the way it was in the springtime, then then we have to. And I, I think it's you respond to the events occurring at the time. And and I can just only be hopeful that what we're doing now is enough. We don't want anybody or, to get ill. Or that uh, there's a vaccine soon. Well exactly. But is is that the impact it's gonna have on healthcare facilities is is that the red flag where the, the governments are gonna be forced to have take some sort of action because that seemed to be the tipping point in the springtime when we saw the impact it was having on hospitals uh, where people were actually you know not being admitted because there was no room for them surgeries were being canceled uh, it, it it was it was scary frankly to see the impact that was having uh, yeah. we don't seem to be there yet though no um we're I think we're, we are doing things differently now than at the very beginning. We didn't really understand the virus at the beginning. Now we are, most people are wearing the masks. Most people are doing the physical distancing. In cer- certain regions, like, you know, the high hotspots, people are staying home. Most people are working from home. So we've made major modifications in our behavior. We understand the virus a lot more. So, and, and, and you know, some of the vulnerable people, like the elderly and, you know, people with comorbidities, you know, we're, we're doing better as far as trying to protect them. I mean, there are still outbreaks going on in long-term care facilities. We're not seeing the massive deaths that we saw at the beginning where, like, you know, 8,000 uh, elderly people in long-term care facilities died. And we're not seeing all of a sudden, even with this resurgence, another 8,000 or, or thousands of elderly people dying. And so... So things have changed. Has the virus changed? I don't know. You know, how, you know, we don't know enough about the virus. Has the virus mutated? I would love to think that the virus has mutated and maybe is potentially milder, but no one knows that, right? So, but there's there's a lot of things that have happened, including our behavior and changes that that we're not having the mortality we had at the beginning. Doctor, it's always reassuring to uh, get your opinion and your read on what's going on. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care. Dr. Anna Vangeri from uh, Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been talking about the uh, second wave of COVID, and obviously the concerns are going to be on the physical and the, the health care aspect of this. 
But business is more than nervous about what's going to be happening now, especially because a lot of them are still recovering or trying to recover anyway from the first wave of COVID. There is panic building for small businesses in particular because of the pandemic. Uh, to give us some details on that, we're pleased to welcome to the program Julie Kuzinski, who is the Director of Provincial Affairs for the Ontario Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Julie, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me to share CFIB's views and happy Small Business Week. And to you as well. Uh, I would get you a card, but I couldn't find one at Shoppers this week. But I'm sure they have them out there someplace for Small Business Week. This is, and, and, and I don't mean to be flippant because this is such an important issue. We all know small business is the backbone of our economy. We all know that they have been crippled uh, by what happened with the first wave. How concerned are they about what's happening now? Well, obviously, Bill, I think it goes without saying extremely concerned. So a couple issues here that stand out. We are now, when we last surveyed our members, they told us that only 27%, so 27% of our small business members are, are at normal sales for this time of year. Only 27%. So couple that with a couple things. So number one, we're getting into the make or break holiday shopping season. Mm-hmm. And another very important point that goes without saying Businesses are having additional restrictions added on, depending on which region they're in. Lately, so as of 12.01 this morning, York Region had additional restrictions put in place, including the closure of indoor dining. So that is further hampering businesses' ability to make revenue. And the government announced a $300 million program, provincial money, but we've yet to see how that program's going to work, when you can apply, where you can apply. We've heard of some of the criteria, but the fact of the matter is, Bill, until we see that program in a web portal where businesses can apply, it really doesn't exist. Well, and that's part of the problem, isn't it? We just had a discussion uh, before you joined us uh, with some healthcare workers who were concerned about, you know, the bump in pay that some got and some didn't. And they said, well, you don't qualify. And it, it's one thing for the premier to roll out a program and, you know, in his daily co- press conferences and say, we're going to milk after this. Here's X number of dollars. And it sounds pretty good. But the devil's in the details, isn't it, Julie? Who's going to get it and who's not? Oh, absolutely. And we've provided some input to government, like your basic things that a small business would want, like access, being able to get on quickly, a low burden of proof so you're not required to give oodles and oodles of paperwork, and to make sure that no one falls through the cracks, which tends to happen, Bill, as we've seen with some of the federal programs, where CFIB and other organizations have had to keep fighting to say, what about this? What about this? And a great example is the business loan program. We're still waiting for the new version of that program that will give an extra $20,000 to certain businesses. But again, who qualifies? Is it the ones who already applied? Or can a new applicant get the forty plus the 20000 the full amount? So there are a lot of questions out there. But I think we've seen, as these programs have evolved, that there's always someone that constantly falls through the cracks. And with the, with the business loan program, we are still waiting. We were told at the end of August that if you were a business who only operated out of a personal account, you would be able to apply. 
and we're still waiting on that one. So that was a group of businesses that had fallen through the cracks. So back to this $300 million loan program. If you're a business that was shut down in York, Peel, Toronto, or Ottawa, where are you going to get any help right now? There's nowhere to apply for this $300 million yet. Um, the expanded federal business account program, as I mentioned before, um, we haven't heard exactly when that's going to be accessible. And even more importantly, what about this new federal rent program? Ontario has put in place, and we appreciate this very much on behalf of our members, commercial evictions protection. But that's until the end of October. So if the federal rent program isn't announced till November, what's going to happen? Where are these businesses? They can't live off of the dream of a program. The program has to be a reality, and it has to be now. Bill, I can't stress this enough. These are businesses that made no errors. It's not like they were shut down because they didn't know what they're doing, didn't know how to run a business. Government is forcing them by government mandate to shut down. For those reasons alone, they need to step up with this money now. And a lot of these businesses, Bill, they were shut down in the first wave, and this is happening to them again right when they were starting to tread water, a crushing blow right before this big holiday season that will really make or break the life of a business, frankly. There's another element to this I wanted to get your comment on, if I could, too, Julie. Sure. Uh, with some of these programs that were initiated in the first wave, uh, there were some, you know, holidays and, and rent and, and, and a couple of other expenses that the government said, lucky, you don't have to worry about this, we got your back on this. Uh, but but it's it's like anything else, you still have to pay it back at some point. How how can your members do that when so few of them are actually even where they should be? I mean, they're not even treading water right now, they're underwater. And, and you know, if revenues aren't there and the government's saying, hey, uh, you know, it's time to start paying this thing back, how are they going to do that? You are so right, Bill. Um, as the saying goes, the chickens will come home to roost on yeah. the payments. We have spoken at length, been doing our due diligence on the lobbying front to make sure that, A, that these deferrals are actually postponed to when there's a time that the business can afford to pay them back. But more importantly, we've put the bug out there about tax forgiveness, forgiveness on some of these payments, because our concern is if, because we've had a couple payments that, that are coming due or just ended, um, so people are going to be asked to pay them. So the question is, will you be asked to pay them all up front? Or what the CRA is doing is actually not a bad thing with the harmonized sales tax payments. They're letting you reach out to them individually on a case-by-case basis to work out a plan where they can get paid that's workable for your particular circumstances. But, Bill, that is an excellent point. I really appreciate that you raised it because you can't take blood from a stone, as the saying goes. Well, and there's another element to this, too, and you just mentioned, for instance, about the rent relief program, uh, and the deadline for that is, well, it's just a couple of weeks away, not even a couple of weeks away now. Yes. Uh, why do they set these arbitrary dates for the I, – I understand you can't put these things through forever in a day. I get that. But it puts even more pressure on small businesses when they say, okay, but you've only got till the end of October, the end of November, whatever the case is going to be in situations like that, because we know that the virus isn't going away by then. We know that the predicament that they're in is not going to go away by then. So why does government put that kind of pressure on a small business person to say, after that, you guys are pretty much on your own? Now, sometimes they have offered extensions, but not all the time. 
Now, another very astute and valid point, Bill. That's why we've asked now, we've already come to government and said, look, this federal rent program, the, the federal finance minister said, it will be in place until June 2021. So take your October deadline, and instead of going month to month where business can barely, the business owner can't sleep at night waking up if the next day the announcement will happen and if it'll be good or not, it, take that legislation, amend it now so that it marries up with the federal one when the federal program is launched, which is supposed to go to June 2021. Just do it now. Don't keep businesses hanging. This month to month thing is just untenable. And not only from the financial perspective, perspective, but stress. I mean, business owners, they're not only supplying consumers with goods and services, they're providing jobs. They need to know if they can still keep these people employed. And a lot of these are family-run operations. And it's a real big stress. I have this situation in my own family, too, with my brother-in-law and Barry, who owns a boat business, where he employs his whole family. So every day he wakes up knowing that any decision that happens impacts not just him and his family, but all of his brothers that he employs. And, and this is a situation that we see happen in a lot of family-run businesses. A lot of the mom-and-pop shops are family-run. Well, sure, and we've seen that with numbers, even when we started going through the different waves, of course, of recovery. Uh, but, you know, restaurants and bars, for instance, you just talked about those a few minutes ago. Uh, if they're only at 40% capacity, they've more than likely just hired 40% of the staff back. Those other people are waiting uh, for business to pick up or for the restrictions to be lifted uh, and, and figured, well, it's probably going to be happening some down the, somewhere down the road. But, in fact, it looks like more restrictions are coming. This, is, this has got to be, Julie, like the sort of Damocles hanging over their heads. They don't know when it's going to drop. Uh, you know, when is the government going to come out maybe this week, maybe next week, and say, uh, we're going to have to do this? I know we did it for, for the GTA and for Peel and for York and for Ottawa. Uh, the concern here is that those restrictions are going to spread across the province. Oh, absolutely. I call it the leapfrog effect. So, I mean, if people are familiar with the region of York, that it borders on beautiful Simcoe County. I have family there. Yep. Um, now already you're getting media reports that Simcoe County's numbers are up, so why isn't there the same restriction in Simcoe County? Then you get the fairness principle, and the issue of the York person is going to leapfrog and go to the restaurants in Simcoe County and so far, and so on and so forth. It's almost like a spreading wildfire of government closures, and you wake up every day, and I honestly do this, Bill, on behalf of our members, and the question is, who's next? And you have to ask yourself, um, is this like business death by a thousand announcements? If you're going to shut them down, then maybe the idea is, do it, but get the money out there. Obviously, I'm not on this program to advocate shutting businesses further, but if it's a health thing and we can't stop them, don't prolong the agony. Get it done, but make sure, in the words of Cuba Gooding Jr. from Jerry Maguire, show <laughs> us the money for our small business members. And don't be closing them and making promises. It's great, $300 million's coming, but where is it? And who can qualify? I mean, make it's, sure it's... that's a priority. Everybody should be staying up all night figuring out how that should operate, because I know I've had a few long nights myself, too, so I'd be joining them for sure. I know, and it's caused so many, I, I 
probably labeled them as unintended consequences. I don't think anybody wanted to see what happened, what is happening now. But when you start with that leapfrogging, as you just described a minute ago, I mean, you've got some jurisdictions right now that are actually saying, before you can come into my restaurant, I want proof of residency. Are you from this area? Yeah. Uh, because, you're, you know, I, I, I want to serve this community. And, and if you're driving 60 miles to come to my restaurant, that's somebody else that can't go there. And it's, it's getting ugly. I know the owners don't want to do that, but what other choice do they have in a situation like that? Oh, absolutely, and uh, you're seeing it happen, and we're hoping that government clarifies all this information. It would really be good to know. As a business owner, you need to plan. If the government would give a better idea, and I know there's a lot of stuff that you don't know. You have to go every day and see what your case numbers are. Sure. But if government knows that they're going to inevitably end up closing or putting in the same restrictions in Simcoe County or Halton Region or Durham Region or wherever, maybe they should just go ahead, get it done, don't prolong the agony, but at the same time, and here's the important thing, I'm not advocating for business closures. What I'm advocating for is if you have to do it and you're going to do it, your numbers show you, show us the evidence that it's necessary, and number two, show us the money, open up that $300 million program. There's no reason for any more delays. Um, that program is now living on exhaust, as far as we're concerned. It needs to be up and running. And uh, I don't want to put pressure on government, but my job is to represent small businesses, and we've been getting calls, and we have no answers to give them. But, uh, but where this can is, this I apply? Do I qualify? Yeah, this is dramatic though, because I mean, even in normal times, and I think some of us can remember those normal times, this is the quarter that these small businesses were really looking to try to make up for whatever losses they might have had through the course of the year. It's, I you know, qualified as the Christmas season, but November, December, and, and even bleeding into October. Uh, if there's a shutdown now, or even a partial shutdown, that, that could be fatal to some of your members. Oh, absolutely. And meanwhile, guess who's raking in all the dough? All the big box people, like Amazon, because people are ordering online. And a lot of small businesses, A, either they can't structure themselves to do e-commerce, or they're just not at a position right now where they can. They don't have the resources. There's a program out there, a digital Main Street grant, that I think it offers something like up to $2,500 to get you into e-commerce. But again qualification issue you have to be within the bia business improvement area downtown core which many businesses aren't or you don't qualify so there's always a catch-22 with these programs and in cfib we're finding that our whole seven eight months of this pandemic has been dedicated to constantly representing the people that have been falling through the cracks, the businesses that have fallen through the cracks, and going back to government and saying, well, did you know that sole proprietors should be covered, just as an example, or that contractors should be covered? This has been essentially our existence. But we're in kind of a black hole right now, Bill, and that's what's scary. As I mentioned earlier, there's a rent program that's been announced. It's not up and running. The business loan account program, the extended one, not up and running. Ontario government's $300 million program, not up and running. So where am I supposed to pull this money as a business owner to pay my bills? Where is it supposed to come from? I told you earlier, 
sales 27% at normal revenues in Ontario. Guess what's happening? Bills are piling up. So my sales are low, but guess what doesn't change? My bills, they keep mm-hmm. piling up. Julie, we've got to leave it there. We're just about out of time. A small business obviously needs a voice, and uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business is that voice. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, and uh, we'll stay on top, in touch with what's going on here, okay? Thank you, Bill. It was a pleasure, and thank you for letting me share CFIB's views today. Great talking with you, too, Julie. Take care now. Stay well. Yes, you too, Bill. Bye. Julie Kwasinski, uh, Director of uh, Public Affairs for the Province of Ontario for the uh, CFIB. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Troubling situation occurring and continuing, of course, in Nova Scotia. The uh, conflict is going on between uh, Aboriginals and uh, the fishing industry there. Nova Scotia fishers have uh, come to a, a head uh, because of what's gone on. There was an ugly fire. There have been protests that have been happening. Uh, we talked about this earlier this morning with the Prime Minister when he was on our program about what the government w- is intending to do. But uh, it's a situation that uh, seems to be getting worse and not better. Uh, there have been a number of different rallies in, uh, in support of both sides in this situation. Eleanor Michael of uh, Nova Scotia First Nations says that the treaty rights that they are clinging to, they, they do have a, a right to, uh, have to be respected. I think the moderate livelihood fishermen should, should be able to do what our treaty said. And the entitlement that comes from the commercial fishermen and the anger from these intoxicated men, they need to just step away. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, there is a larger RCMP presence, we're told, but uh, is there a solution in sight? Joining us to talk about this is Ashley Field. Ashley is a morning news reporter with Global News on site. Uh, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what's the latest as you see it this morning? Yeah, of course, my pleasure. Well, uh, obviously, the latest act of violence is kind of the big news here. Um, you know, early Saturday morning, a lobster pound in uh, Middle West Pubnico was burned to the ground. Now, this lobster pound was used by Indigenous fishers to store their catch. Um, RCMP haven't uh, arrested anyone yet in relation to this or made any charges, but they do say that a person of interest is in hospital with life-threatening injuries. So uh, this is the same lobster pound where earlier last week, uh, Tuesday night, that's when an Indigenous fisher, he brought his lobsters there for storage. He was forced to actually barricade himself inside uh, because there was an angry mob of commercial fishers who removed his catch. They smashed out windows. They also set a van on fire. Um, RCMP, though, have since uh, charged a 31-year-old man with arson for, for torching that van. There were, I mentioned in the opening here about the, the the Supreme Court ruling, and I want to talk to you about that in just a couple of seconds. But there was a sense of coexistence for quite some time until about four or five weeks ago. What what sparked all of a sudden the conflict? Yeah, well, um, it's my understanding the Sabaganagadi First Nation, which is kind of at the the you know the crux of this uh, this issue that's going on in Southwest Nova Scotia, they had been in the. Uh, in the works to build their own lobster fishery for uh, a couple of years now but it was it was just a little while ago that they actually established that and started you know sending out their own uh boats fishery boats onto the water to fish so uh that was kind of what started all of this of course as you mentioned this isn't new there have been uh you know this is kind of 20 years in the making the supreme court of canada ruled uh the marshall decision you know 20 years ago that um Indigenous fishers, they are allowed to fish outside the commercial season for a moderate livelihood. Um, But that's kind of in quotation marks, a moderate livelihood. That's kind of where this controversy stems from is, you know, the government never really defined what that means. So uh, 
for commercial fishermen, they just say, you know, everyone should have the right to, or everyone should be uh, fishing during the same season. They say that this is a conservation issue. Yeah, that moderate livelihood is, is, is really sticking in the craw on both sides in a situation like this because the court was not really uh, clear uh, with that determination. And, and both sides mm-hmm. are, are obviously interpreting it in a different fashion. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think that's really, obviously, there's more at play here. Obviously, policing has become a big issue with, uh, you know, what's played out in the last few weeks in southwest Nova Scotia. But a lot of people not only criticizing RCMP, but kind of criticizing the federal government for not really, you know, making this clear. Um, But that's actually, you know, they're actually talking about that right now Um, in Ottawa. There is a meeting going on, um, you know, hoping to maybe bring a conclusion to this. Bernadette Jordan tweeted late last night saying that this needs to be debated in the House. We really do need to, you know, find a solution to this. She requested an emergency debate, um, you know, to discuss and address implementing the Mi'kmaq Treaty right, which of course is something that, you know, Indigenous fishermen and the Indigenous community has been asking for for a very long time. Yeah, there's probably going to be a debate today. I, I just, I know you're, you're right. They're having a presser right now in Ottawa with three or four of the ministers there at the head table talking about uh, what they'd like to do. But they've been awfully slow to respond to this, haven't they? Yeah, from, uh, you know, it's often the criticism that, uh, you know, politicians will come out with, you know, tweets condemning violence. But it's really the action, you know, that they're they're looking for is... Um, yeah, I guess you could say the criticism has been both towards the RCMP and the federal government for not really stepping in and kind of taking control of the situation before it came to some of these very violent situations. Let me ask you about that. We, you know, we had the prime minister on the show just about an hour or so ago, and he was talking about what he'd like to see do, and he did mention that there was going to be an increased RCMP presence there. How are the townspeople in these areas feeling? I mean, there's got to be some concern here about their safety. Yeah, I think... Um, I think it's been made clear that this is kind of a, somewhat of a peacekeeping operation, right? It's not, they're not militarized going in there with increased presence. I know from Chief Michael Sack, who's the chief of the Sebaganagadi First Nation, he said that he is comforted to know that there are going to be more boots on the ground because that's what he's been long calling for. He said, you know, his fishermen don't feel safe out on the waters. But not only that, his community is facing daily threats and intimidation from those commercial fishermen. So he uh, is certainly happy to see is see, to see the increased presence uh, in the community. I know we spoke with some, you know, people who lived in Middle West Pubnico. They condemned these acts of violence. They said that it was disgusting to see, you know, to see whoever burned down this um, this lobster pound. So uh, I think it'll be interesting to see over the next few days how everything plays out. But um, it's from my understanding, they're bringing in, you know, there's going to be officers from several local detachments in the area, but we're also going to see some officers from Prince Edward Island brought in, but they're trained specifically in de-escalation and crowd control. As I was watching the the global coverage of this over the weekend, uh, what struck me, uh, Ashley, what I found interesting is is clearly there's a conflict here between the two sets here, between the Aboriginals and the the Nova Scotia uh, commercial fisher folks. But they don't seem to be angry at each other. They seem angry at the federal government. In other words, that focus seems to be going to Ottawa, not towards, uh, towards the conflicting sides here. Yeah, I think that's a fair point to make, too, because I feel like um, there has been some, 
I guess, misinformation uh, around this. And again, as you, as we, we already spoke about, the fact that this moderate livelihood hasn't been kind of accurately defined leaves the room for interpretation, which, of course, is kind of what's breeding some of this controversy. But, you know, we did speak with some experts in, you know, the fishing industry who, you know, while commercial fishermen, you know, have been vocal about this being a conservation issue. Experts say, well, that's not really based on science. You know, we spoke with an associate professor at Dalhousie University who says that uh, right now there's really no threat to the lobster population and lobster stocks are actually doing better than ever right now. Um, She also mentioned that these uh, lobster seasons, they were created not necessarily for the lobster population, but more for economic reasons, right? So to keep the, the prices at bay and whatnot, so that, um, so that yeah, for exporting and, you know, the prices will stay high. So that's generally what she said. It's an economic issue, not necessarily a conservation issue. So I think that's where there's been some misinformation as well. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about that uh, because one of the accusations, of course, being leveled against uh, the First Nations is that they were uh, fishing out of season. Uh, And and those seem like very arbitrary dates that they set up here because I know that the response to that is, well, we can do whatever we want. I mean, you know, why why do there have to be limits or or even a time limit as to when we can and can't do this? So there's there's a major, major chasm of of misunderstanding that's going on here. Yeah, it's true. So... Um, the professor, her name is Megan Bailey. She said, um, you know, these concert or sorry, not conservation, but these uh, dates that are put in place so that Canada is always producing hard shell lobster. Um, and that's so that we're always able to sell and export that. That's why we don't generally catch soft shell lobster in the summer. So again, it's not necessarily a conservation issue. It is an economic issue. And uh, yeah, that, that, that argument is just not really based on science. So Ashley, as, as you talk to the folks that are involved in this, and I, I know that we've the Global's covered the, the the demonstrations that have gone on too, not just the, the violence and, and of course, hopefully some negotiations at some point. Is is there a sense of, of frustration uh, from the commercial fishers that uh, that that this relatively new endeavor uh, by the Aboriginal groups is is cutting into their market market share? In other words, yeah, I think I think that's really uh, you know that's part of the problem as well. We've seen them, you know, captured on cell phone video saying, you know, it's a, again, it's a conservation issue. Um, I think that there's also some, you know, maybe just some general dissatisfaction with the way that um, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Um, that everything's set up right now for commercial fishermen as well when it comes to uh, what their rules and regulations are. So I think it'll really just take everyone kind of sitting down at the table and kind of hashing this out um, and communicating rather than resorting to violence to, you know, find a solution to this. Well, exactly, because at the point and and the, uh, the conversation you had with the professor from Dalhousie, uh, it doesn't seem as if this is a conservation issue at all yet. That's what the, the commercial fishers seem to keep coming back to. And, and i got to figure, invariably, you know, <laughs> what do they always say? You know, uh, follow the money. Uh, and uh, it seems to me the real concern uh, that they have right now is, as you mentioned, if the, mo- if the market becomes flooded uh, because of the increased activity from the aboriginal fishers, that they're afraid market price is going to go down and then everybody's going to suffer. That doesn't seem to be a concern with the aboriginal group, but it certainly is with the commercial fishers. Oh, I think we may have lost Ashley. Yep, sounds 
Upsound, so may, a, bit, a bit of a book there. Uh, cell phone technology being what it is. We'll see if we can hook up with her in just a couple of seconds. Trying to get some clarity on exactly what's happening uh, in uh, Nova Scotia, of course, with this conflict. And uh, as we talked about with the Prime Minister in the first hour of the program today, we're uh, endeavoring to find out just how the federal government is uh, going to move forward on this because clearly uh, just simply putting more <coughs> excuse me, RCMP into that is not going to be the solution to the situation. In fact, it may actually help as far as the public safety concerns are going, but uh, what are they going to happen? What are they going to do, and what's going to happen here? If there is a, an emergency debate, and we should mention, by the way, that uh, it was actually the, the the cabinet ministers and the NDP that have requested this debate, uh, it sounds as if the government is ready to take some action on this. So, and I guess before we're going to find anything in the way of a resolution here, uh, I think we've got uh, Ashley Field back with us now for Global News. Uh, Ashley, thanks. Uh, sorry about the interruption here. Uh, you know, remote broadcasting, et cetera, et cetera. These things are happening more and more yeah. these days. But thanks for hanging in there with us. Uh, yeah, but no if, problem. If they're going to have a solution to this, though, they're going to have to be open and honest about exactly what the concerns are. Uh, as I say, you already got an expert opinion about conservation from, uh, from the professor at Dalhousie University. Uh, if it's about market share and market price, then put that on the table. But I don't I didn't get the sense that commercial fishers really want to do that. Yeah, it's a little bit tough to say. I mean, when we send our reporters down there, I mean, there has been, you know, there's been tensions not only between the uh, the two communities, right, so the indigenous community and the commercial fishermen, but there's been a lot of tension too uh, surrounding having media down in the area. So not a lot of not a lot of commercial fishermen are willing to actually speak with media to give their side of the story. They say, you know, media hasn't really been. Um, you know, telling the story accurately, I suppose, is the right way. But, I mean, it's been really difficult to find out what their, what the crux of the issue is because people are saying, well, if it's not a conservation issue, then what is it? Is it a race issue? You know, what is the, what is the actual concerns in the community? So, like I said, it's, I think it's really going to take that open and honest communication, like you said, honesty, and really finding out, you know, what is driving the violence and what is driving the anger in the community because it really did just flare up recently. And, um, and yeah, there definitely needs to be a resolution. So, you know, hopefully they'll all sit down at the table and hash it out. Actually, we mentioned, of course, there have been some demonstrations, of, actually from both sides, uh, in the communities that are, that are directly affected by this. Uh, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, tensions are getting pretty hot right now and starting to increase. Is there a concern that, that, that this could spread uh, sympathetic uh, demonstrations in other parts of the province where they, they may start taking sides on this? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, we've seen from both sides, we've seen large demonstrations from commercial fishermen out in like the Salmiaville area where this kind of all started. Um, and we've seen actually here in Halifax some pretty large demonstrations just on Sunday. So yesterday, about a thousand people actually uh, rallied in downtown Halifax. You know, they were singing, they were drumming. Um, but most importantly, you know, calling for governments to really step in and do more. You know, again, this comes down to Indigenous uh, treaty rights. So they're, you know, they, people say there yesterday they're just doing what they're allowed to do. Um, and, you know, this has come at a cost for the community, not only, you know, in the form of, you know, intimidation and threats, vandalism. Um, but Chief Zach actually said yesterday that the band is potentially facing a $1 million loss due to all of this. You know, vandalism aside, they're not able to sell their catch. Um, you know, they've been, their lobster pound has been destroyed. And those who have actually bought from or who are customers of Indigenous fishermen, they've actually been intimidated also. You know, commercial fishermen have showed up at, at their doorsteps. 
So uh, it's a very volatile situation right now, and hopefully, you know, maybe some more action on the part of RCMP will kind of quell some of the anger that's going on right now. But the crux of this whole thing, to go right back to the beginning of our conversation, is is that phrase, moderate livelihood. At mm-hmm. some point, I would think uh, the, the pressure here, actually is going to be on the federal government, whichever ministry I guess that's going to be, or even on the prime minister, uh, to, to define exactly what that entails. And, and no matter which way they go on this, uh, this, somebody's going to be pretty ticked off at the definition. you got to figure on that. So this is not going to end anytime soon, and it's not going to end quickly. Yeah, no, I don't think it'll end quickly. Um, hopefully we won't see the violence continue, but hopefully we will start to see actually the conversation start again. This is, you know, a 20-year kind of ongoing dispute that's been happening, trying to kind of narrow down a definition. And it sounds like, at least to me, uh, that the federal government is taking this really seriously. Hopefully, you know, their conversations in the House is, you know, going to come to some kind of resolution. But as as you and I both know, it's not going to necessarily happen quickly, like you said. No, absolutely. I know they're going to have a debate about this today, but uh, I don't see anybody uh, touting solutions at this stage. I mean, they want to listen, I guess, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm not so sure that either side wants to continue talking right now. They're looking for some action. I know the premiers weighed in on this, too. Uh, and again, the focus is on the federal government to do something about this. So it's uh, it's it's a legal issue. Uh, you're right. I mean, I saw some of the coverage on Global over the weekend. There are certainly racial overtones uh, to at least what some of the protesters are saying, uh, if not the two sides. Uh, so this is this is going to take an awful lot of sorting out. Not just in, in Ottawa, but certainly at the local level as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, I know that there has been, you know, calls for the provincial government to do more also. But, you know, Premier Stephen McNeil has kind of been, you know, he's very much pointed to the federal government and said, this is something that you're going to have to undertake and you're going to have to sort out. So I guess only time will tell uh, to see what, what happens on that front. Well, a very volatile situation, and uh, a great job by the Global News team uh, out there to, to cover all sides of this and uh, get all the pertinent in- information and the uh, the right people to talk about this and comment on this and adding a lot of clarity to a, a very fu- befuddled situation of, mm-hmm. as, as we continue. Ashley, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks. You too. Take care. Ashley Field, Morning News reporter with Global News, covering that situation. And, of course, there will be an update as the uh, the Global News team continues to cover that story on uh, Global National later on tonight at 6.30. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. 911. 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh, my God. The ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.